according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in the book of Jeremiah. Almost said Isaiah. Jeremiah. We started Jeremiah last week. We have uh, really begun a journey uh, some time back as we covered Isaiah in 66 chapters over 66 weeks. And uh, now the follow-up is to uh, handle uh, Jeremiah. Likewise, one chapter per Sunday. And so today we arrive at chapter 2, introducing the book a week ago. We saw in chapter 1 the call of Jeremiah as a youth. We'll see that again. As a youth, he's put to work. You don't just call a prophet and then expect him to wait 20 years before he delivers his first message. If you called him as a youth, he's going to start preaching as a youth. And that's what we're going to get this morning in chapter 2, the first sermon that uh, Jeremiah will deliver before Jerusalem. It says in Jeremiah 2, 1, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, thus saith the Lord. Before we get started this morning, let's take a moment of silent prayer to ask God the Father to set aside distractions, to sanctify our thinking, to bless us through the truth of his word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do rejoice in your faithfulness, and we call upon you once again this hour to set aside distractions, to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus to turn our eyes firmly upon Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, we call upon your faithfulness, the faithfulness of God, the Holy Spirit, who searches all things, even the deep things of God, that the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit will bless us today as we study to show ourselves approved. I thank you for the prophet Jeremiah. I thank you for Isaiah and Jeremiah. I thank you for the content of their prophecies. I thank you for the ministries that they had to the nation of Judah. And, uh, Father, I ask that the content of this message would be a blessing for these saints. Father, as uh, our nation is headed in a direction that we, uh, well, we don't know, Father, and yet your word is sufficient and it will sustain us. And so I thank you for the weeping prophet, for his faithfulness to deliver the messages that the audience didn't want to hear. I pray that we would hear. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And Jeremiah's first public message was a rebuke for Jerusalem's apostasy. It really contains the entirety of chapter 2 as well as the first five verses of chapter 3. This is the first spoken message that he's given and, and instructed to deliver. The word of the Lord came to me saying, and it's, it's useful to consider when a prophet uses an expression such as this, the word of the Lord came to me saying that we typically think of it as an ecstatic experience. We tend to think of it as some kind of a spiritual feeling that impressed upon his soul or a, the content of a message that came to his mind from God and that he would stand up and he would speak. But I think we could also relate this as a personal Christophany and appearance of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the Word. He is the living Word. And in so many cases, when we have an Old Testament prophet and it says, the Word of the Lord came to me saying, it is not a stretch to consider that Jesus Christ himself appeared in a Christophany, in an Old Testament appearance, that he came to teach Jeremiah the very doctrine that he would then have to turn and deliver to the nation of Israel. 
So the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord. I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. And it's interesting when a young man reminisces over the days gone by, all right? I remember when you were just a youth or holding a little baby and remembering when my girls were that small, things of that nature. And reminiscing is easier to do when you're older, and it's a little more awkward to do when you're younger. And in fact, if you are an eight-year-old preaching to the nation of Israel and reminiscing about the Exodus, we understand that it's pretty significant. It is a prophetic utterance coming from the Lord himself, but using a child to speak it, using a child to teach it, as far as that goes. The prophet who was called in his youth, we saw that last week, reminisces over Israel's youth and betrothal to Yahweh. And we we identify the role of Israel as the bride of Yahweh. And we've taught distinctions between Israel and the church and why faithless Israel, the harlot, The faithless wife of Yahweh is not the same as the virgin bride of Christ. That is one of the most glaring distinctions between Israel and the church is the nature of their role as either faithless harlots or virgin brides. We'll talk about some of that this morning and on into next week when we get into chapters 3 and then chapter 4 and why it is that Yahweh issued the certificate of divorce that he did to the faithless nation of Israel. And so we have this prophet called in his youth and reminiscing over the Exodus, reminiscing over the wilderness wanderings through uh, into the promised land. And then uh, the hear the word of the Lord message uh, that begins here in verses four and following. All right. Now, a human being, and we speculate maybe eight years old, only because the king himself was called as a youth. The final good king of, of Judah took the throne when he was eight years old. And then, as we saw last week, it was in the 13th year of his reign then, that's Jeremiah 1-2, that when Jeremiah was called, it was in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. All right? And so we know for a fact, biblically, that Josiah was an eight-year-old boy when he took the throne. And we know that he began uh, reforms in the fourth year of his reign and in the eighth year of his reign. And then in the 18th year of his reign, they discover a lost scroll in the temple. And a huge national revival was sparked based upon the discovery of that scroll. Well, we don't know the exact age, and he may have been eight, he may have been, you know, plus or minus. Uh, but he's, not a, he's clearly a youth, and he's described as a youth in uh, chapter one and the chapters that follow. Now, I mean, if you're going to have a 50-year ministry, you've got to start kind of young, <laughs> or you won't live long enough to preach for 50 years. All right, so here we have it. By the way, how different is this, or how similar is this to uh, what Jesus Christ accomplished when uh, in John chapter 8, he started reminiscing about the days of Abraham? <laughs> All right, he's dealing with some hostile people there in John chapter 8, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but you may be familiar with the story In John chapter 8, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the other uh, religious leaders in Jerusalem, and he's talking about Abraham. They were so prideful about being sons of Abraham. And he said, well, if you're Abraham's sons, do the deeds of Abraham. But, you know, you're trying to kill me. 
And Abraham never did that. <laughs> so where do you, why do you call yourself sons of Abraham? And he reminisces over Abraham's days. And um, so he, he discusses this here. And so he says in verse 56 of John 8, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And he makes the declaration that he makes there related to, of course, his pre-existence, his deity as God the Son, pre-existing Abraham himself. Now, Jeremiah clearly was not in the beginning with the Word and and so forth. He was not in the beginning with God. He wasn't pre-existent. But as a prophet being shown these visions, speaking on behalf of the Lord himself, it's entirely appropriate for the prophet Jeremiah to speak, oh, I remember when Israel was a child. I remember when Israel was so young. And to reminisce over the, the, um, the honeymoon, if you will, of the betrothal and of the, the marriage itself. Remembering back to the way things used to be. And so uh, it's kind of an interesting start here to chapter 2 in this way. I think other prophets did the same thing. And it's not a mark of his deity per se, although he does make the I am statement there in John 8. I think Jesus actually spoke more often as a prophet and never once tapped into his omniscience. I don't think he tapped into omniscience one time in the process of his earthly ministry in uh, different aspects there. But then Yahweh now asks the question in verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. This is a question that maybe every husband has asked, maybe every wife has asked, maybe every parent has asked, maybe um, every person has asked, where did I go wrong? All right? Where did I go wrong? What did I do that you would cheat on me the way that you have? Okay? Why? What? And, and so asking this question, all right? Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? What injustice was it? Obviously, as a rhetorical question, there's no answer to that. What injustice can you find in God? There is none. So they can't point to something he did wrong to any aspect of him being unfair. He was never unfair to Israel. So they can't point to his being unfair to justify their adultery, to justify their being faithless to him as the covenant bride, the covenant wife of Yahweh here in the Old Testament. They did not say in verse 6, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness? They didn't say that. They could have said that. They should have said that. Any time that things got tough, they should have said, where is the Lord our God? Where is the Lord who redeemed us, who saved us, who shepherded us? Because they can go to Him time and time and time again. There's never an occasion when they can't go to Him. See? But they never did. They did not say, where is the Lord? In um, verse 7, I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things. But you came and defiled my land and my inheritance you made an abomination. After everything he did for Israel, they turned and they lived in defiance of that. See, and as a nation, they set the pattern that you and I are supposed to learn from. 
because we do the very same thing. We do the same thing in our Christian walk to the God who saved us, to the God who redeemed us, to the God who sent his son to die on the cross, that we can walk before him in love. We turn and we defile that in our carnality, in our rebellion, in the, in the sin choices that we make. And so don't just laugh off this chapter and say, boy, Jeremiah was sure chewing them out. All right. The Lord is chewing us out when we fail to live our lives worthy of the calling with which we have been called. This message is applicable for us as well in the outworking of our faith. The priests do not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law, we would call them scribes in later passages. Those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. Better than rulers there, the shepherds. The shepherds also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after the Ecclesiastes lifestyle. Things that did not profit. The emptiness and vanity of things that are just a complete waste of time. So without prophets, without scribes, without shepherds, without, uh, without priests, if the leadership is walking the Ecclesiastes lifestyle, what? are the people expected to do and we have the uh, the sadness of it here that then leads us to a therefore in verse nine all right some of the points we want to glean out of this though understand this what injustice did the jewish people ever find in the lord to justify their apostasy to justify their departure the answer is none none all right, if we want to start making excuses or point to people, Eve wanted to point at a serpent and Adam wanted to point at Eve or even point at God. I think that's what Adam did when Adam said it was the woman you gave me. He wasn't necessarily blaming the woman as much as he was blaming God. It was the woman you gave me. You should have given me a better woman. <laughs> All right, and, and we can't do that. We can't. The only finger pointing we need to do is point to ourselves and say, I rebelled. I sinned. I made the choice. And uh, the issue here, you cannot point to an injustice because there has been none. God in his total faithfulness has given you all things necessary for life and godliness. And when we go carnal, it's not because he let us down. It's because we are choosing not to walk in the equipping and in the tools and in the word of God that he has made available to each one of us. Leadership. We don't blame the leadership, but we identify that when they, when they depart, we're, uh, we're in a lot of trouble, all right? Priests, scribes, shepherds, and prophets, they led the people into unprofitable vanity. Unprofitable vanity. And we got these expressions here in verse 8 and in verse 5, the emptiness of verse 5, and the non-profiting useless things in verse 8. All right, and we can't slow down and do the exegesis or break down the, the grammar and the syntax on. That's not to format this hour, all right? But this is uh, what the Apostle Paul would preach about when he says all is lawful but not all is profitable. All is lawful but not all edifies. The priests and the scribes and the shepherds and the prophets, they were taking Israel into this unprofitable, empty, vain, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, Ecclesiastes way of life. And this is, this is horrible. And God holds them accountable. Shepherding failures will always get the attention of the good shepherd. 
Jesus Christ holds shepherding shepherds absolutely responsible. Shepherding failure is a huge issue for the Lord's personal action. It is huge, and we better pay heed to this. He is chewing them out here in this chapter. Like I said, the rulers, better to render that as the shepherds in verse 8. But priests, scribes, those who handle the law, shepherds and prophets. It is a breakdown in the leadership, similar to what we had in the book of Isaiah. All right? And, then, and God judges that. That in turn judges the people. Shepherding failure is a huge issue. We'll have more on this when we get to the 23rd chapter. Why is it always the 23rd chapter? Right? Psalm 23 is a shepherding chapter. Jeremiah 23. I think even Ezekiel 23. There's, there's, it's, it's interesting. All right? But Jeremiah 23, 1 through 4. Woe to the shepherds. Remember woe? We learned about woe in Isaiah. Woe is not a good news. Okay? It is a, it is a bad, bad message. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. If you're pastoring a church or you're shepherding a wife or children, if you are the shepherd of your family, God God takes these shepherding issues seriously. And uh, you realize it's not your sheep. (laughs) He's assigned them to you, but it's his flock. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are attending the people, you have scattered my flock, driven them away, have not attended to them, Behold, I am about to attend to you. (laughs) He's fixing to. All right, there's a good Texas expression. He says, you're supposed to be attending to them and you're not, so I'm fixing to attend to you. And this won't be pleasant. You will not enjoy this. And so, uh, for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord, then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. And whether it's this passage or Ezekiel 34 or Psalm 23 or any of the shepherding passages, John 10, I am the good shepherd, any shepherding passage you want to turn to where you see how faithful the Lord is to shepherd his flock, how he can leave the 90 and 9 and go to find the one that's walking amongst the hills. And you realize that this is something that Jesus Christ himself takes personal responsibility for. And it should be a great comfort, a great comfort for any sheep, any uh, person in any church to think that, you know, that, that the human shepherd that's been assigned to you maybe falls short every so often and in uh, can we really uh, and i don't know and well stop right there if your faith and confidence is in that human being shepherd you're doomed to start with all right get your eyes off the human being and, and understand it's the good shepherd that's the shepherd of this church he's the head of this church and uh, when that under shepherd needs to be dealt with jesus christ is very good at doing that <laughs> you don't need to form a committee the, the fix the pastor committee jesus christ is way ahead of you And he deals with his shepherds in very faithful ways. Again, I would point you to Jeremiah 23. I can't take the time to read all of Ezekiel 34. I'll just show you some of the highlights here. In Ezekiel 34, you will notice some of the same emphasis that we had in in Jeremiah 23. You'll notice it's a woe message. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. He's not talking about those who are occupational sheep watchers. 
okay? He was talking about priests and prophets and tribal princes and leaders and fathers and husbands, anyone in a shepherd, spiritual shepherding capacity. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe, woe, shepherds of Israel who should have been, who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock. And how selfish is it of these false shepherds that it's all about them and how they can victimize the sheep in order to eat the fat and clothe themselves and everything is all about them. And if there's a sickly sheep, there's no time for that. There's no help for the sickly sheep. What does the shepherd get out of a sickly sheep? Can't do anything for me. Who needs you? That is the wrong approach to a faithful shepherd. The sickly have to be healed. The broken have to be bound up. The lost have to be found. And so, um, as the rebuke comes here in Ezekiel 34, 4, those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and severity you have dominated them. Let me tell you something. (laughs) There are folks that believe that force and severity is a leadership tool. It is not not in God's standard of shepherding leadership. It is not about force and severity dominating anybody. It is about faithfulness as a shepherd to tend the needs of the flock and to be accountable for Jesus Christ because it's it's his flock. And so in verse 7 here, again, I've got to skip through this pretty rapidly, but Ezekiel 34, 7, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord, as I live, declares the Lord God. That's, That's severe. The God who cannot lie is taking a vow. And the God who cannot die stakes his vow on his very life. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely, because my flock has become a prey, and he recounts all of this, therefore I am against you, you shepherds. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, I am against the shepherds, it says in verse 10. And he will personally deal with the faithless shepherds that need to be dealt with. So I myself, and and be faithful and be thankful for verse 11. I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. If if the human shepherd drops the ball, the good shepherd certainly doesn't. He is right there. He will take care of business. He'll take care of the the bad shepherd, but he'll take care of the sheep in the process. We can be thankful for that as well. Getting back now to Jeremiah 2 in these verses 4 through 8. What God's going to do, what God's going to do. And in verses 9 and following, he continues in Jeremiah 2, 9, Therefore, I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons' sons I will contend. See, God's got an eternal plan that encompasses the children to the third and the fourth generation, even to the thousandth generation of those who love him. For cross to the coastlands of Kittim and Sea, and send to Kedar and observe closely. Now that's west and east of, of Israel. So if we were to, we would update that for our, our geography and say, you know, look to New Mexico and, and Arkansas or something. I mean, pick the state to the west and the state to the east and, and just see, you know, search far and wide and see. I don't, if you look west and you look east, has anything like this ever happened before? See if there has been such a thing as this. If something is so extraordinary that not even the unbelievers do it, that gets your attention. <laughs> you know, the, the man of incest, Paul says, you know, not even unbelievers do this. 
If the pagans aren't doing this, what are you guys doing? Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? You know, has a pagan nation ever decided, you know, you know, did the Greeks ever come along and say, yeah, Zeus and those guys, they're kind of chumps. Let's, let's find some better gods. Never. The only time it ever happens is when they're defeated. If, if Babylon comes in and conquers the Assyrians, then they force the Assyrians to abandon the, the Assyrian gods and adopt the Babylonian gods. But the only reason they do that is because they think their gods just got killed. Their gods just died. The Babylonian gods defeated the Assyrian gods and so, well, our gods are dead. We, and so they submit to these new gods. But no one ever voluntarily just says, you know, the, the, just says, the Egyptians never say, oh, well, we're done with these guys. The, the, those gods look better. And even the unbelievers, not even pagans, will change their false pagan gods. And, and they're serving false gods to begin with. <laughs> How can Israel then change from the one true God to the idols that they decided to start following? They abandoned the God who redeemed them out of Egypt to start following Baal, to start following uh, Nebo, to start following any of these other gods they started pursuing. How can Israel change from the one true God? See, that's the thing. When somebody gets saved, they're turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And it doesn't matter if they were Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim or mormon or whatever they were or even just a, a a secular atheist it doesn't matter whatever they were before they got saved now they're serving the living and true god and that's always been the case and so these pagans with whatever their false pagan gods are i'm going to be talking about baal a lot because baal is in this chapter and he's throughout um much of of the book of jeremiah but there's other gods there's egyptian gods and babylonian gods and they're going to be mentioned in this book And since pagans don't do this, how can Israel do this? How is it that they can change from the one true God to the idols that they followed? It becomes unthinkable. And and that's why apostasy for any believer is, is so tragic. When someone who was saved by the blood of Jesus Christ then departs from the faith. Okay? Can't lose their salvation. Don't get me wrong. They don't stop being saved, but they stop living according to the one who died for them and gave his life. And how sad is that? Even more tragic when the number one God I think we bail for is ourselves. <laughs> we turn ourselves into idol number one. And what a pathetic God, okay? Puny God. To do a movie quote there for you, all right? What a puny God when I start serving myself instead of serving um, the God who saved me my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his life that I could have his. And so this is how the chapter begins. And it doesn't stop there. I mean, it could stop. He's kind of said it all, but he keeps saying it. He keeps saying it. He has other illustrations. He has other uh, undeniable rhetorical approaches. The chapter is very rich in what it presents here. So again, verse 11, has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Even if hypothetically the, the Greeks abandoned Zeus and decided to pursue somebody else, they're still substituting nothing for nothing. <laughs> they're still swapping out emptiness for more emptiness, and so they really haven't lost anything. But Israel is abandoning Yahweh for nothing. How useless is that? Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. 
be very desolate, declares the Lord. And how appalled are the angels watching in heaven, and so appalled are the residents of the third heaven and the second heaven that the first heaven has some atmospheric consequences. Rain gets withheld, and there's a drought that's cast upon the land, and there's some divine discipline that comes to a people in their apostasy. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And it really becomes a double sin at that point. First of all, a sin of omission by not being uh, convicted by the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit and obedient to God. And then secondly, the sin of of commission by following after the idols. You know, if you think about it, every sin you ever confess... You can confess twice. You can say, Father, I did such and such, whatever. I stole the cookie from the cookie jar. Pick a sin and confess that. But before you did that, what else did you do? You stopped walking by means of God and the Holy Spirit. All right? You stopped walking in the light. You stopped. And see, that's the, that's the issue there. We're going to see that in Galatians 5, our other Sunday morning series in the book of Galatians. If you walk by means of the Spirit, you cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh. So what happens is the same thing that happens here in this verse. You stop serving the Lord, and then you start serving these idols. Committed two evils. You know, and again, what 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 an exchange. You're trading the best for something horrible. What could be better than a spring, a fountain of living waters? You know, if you're hiking on a Boy Scout hike and you come across a spring, oh my goodness. There's nothing better in the world. The fresh, clean water, it springs forth from a rock and some, man, you know, you could, you could just drink from that all day long and fresh and pure and clean. And, and you want to substitute instead? You want to substitute a cistern? Even a good cistern is, is inferior. How about a broken cistern? Something that's crumbling, something that's letting impurity seep in, something that's nasty and, and brackish and, and, and stale, something that's like the stupid pond across the driveway over there. <laughs> Man. City told us to put that in and I'm not impressed. All right. Where am I? Broken cisterns that can hold no water. You know, at least if it's not broken, it can you can have a water tank. But if it's broken, what good is that? Water keeps seeping out of it and other things start seeping in and it's hideous. And this is what Israel has done. And so this actually then sparks the rest of the chapter. This sparks the discussion that follows. And all of these questions, you notice it is, it's, it's a bit um, accusatory. It's almost like a legal brief filed in a court. Again, uh, you, you know, if it's a divorce proceeding and you're trying to argue your case and the judge uh, uh, is, is not really buying some of the things you're trying to, trying to introduce here... <laughs> You know, because you can't point to any injustice that, that your husband has, has committed against you. He has been absolutely faithful. And some of these other things. Have you really swapped out the living God for this non-existent empty idolatry? Have you swapped out a fountain of living water for cisterns, broken cisterns? Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why has he become a prey? Why are you a victim? there's a convicting message (laughs) i could stop right there in that verse and preach that the rest of the month we live in a victim culture don't we not i mean it seems like 
everybody's wanting to sue everybody for everything and everybody's a victim for something and nothing's ever our fault. Man, we've kind of turned victimhood into an art form. You know, our, our, not we in this room, but, you know, we, our, our culture, our country, our society. Everybody's going to be a victim about something. But Jeremiah's rhetorical questions about nations changing their gods sparks a lengthy chain of additional such questions and rebukes. You could even think of it, a technical term is called a diatribe. All right, it just goes and goes and goes and goes. And there's a, there's a rhetorical benefit to that. It becomes overwhelming and undeniable. All right, diatribe is a, is a facet of literature or rhetoric. It actually is, is, is valid in many cases. You know, we don't like diatribes today in, in, in personal discussions. You know, if a coworker's launching into some kind of a diatribe, you usually just go away and or find a better place to be or spend time with a different coworker. We don't like we don't like human diatribes in, in, in a variety of ways. But God uses the diatribe. He uses it as a as a facet in his literature, in his canon of scripture, as a as a facet of communication. Paul used a lot of them, Jeremiah's using them here. So here's a chain. In fact, four things we got to get through. And uh, we'll see how, how we do here. But starting with prey. Why has he become a prey? Why are we victims? Why are we losing? Why do I think that there's no provision? Because God is the one I serve. Am I a conqueror or am I a victim? And there's the question. Why is Israel the prey? They should be serving the Lion of Judah. We, too, are even greater overcomers than Israel could ever dream of because we are overcomers in Christ. Who is the overcomer? Christ. And where are we? In Christ. All right? You ever study the overcomer? This is the overcomer. And, and what has, we have overcome the world, and this is what has overcome the world. It is our faith. We are in Christ. He is the overcomer. He said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Why? Because I have overcome the world. And so, you know, the defeatist attitude, it was, it was ridiculous for Israel to have the defeatist attitude, but they did. Again and again and again and again, they did. It's even more ridiculous for us. They should be serving the Lion of Judah, the victory that is available for them. He is the Lion of Judah, prophesied in Genesis 49.9, spoken of again in another prophecy in Numbers 24.9. Referenced by the Apostle John in Revelation 5 5. He is the Lamb of God and He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the one that was victorious at the cross. And if He was victorious at the cross, where will He not be victorious? <laughs> there is, he's already done the hardest thing He will ever do, the maximally difficult thing that Jesus Christ has ever done in obedience to God the Father. So, taking care of me, my daily life, the rapture, the tribulation, the second advent, Armageddon, that's all easy, easy peasy, okay? Compared to what he already did at Calvary. There is nothing he will do that is, that is more difficult than obeying the Father and laying down his life and having that spiritual separation from God the Father. I think, too, this is uh, something for us to consider. Why are we being victimized? Are we not the conquerors? Are we not the overcomers? And you know, and a king would get scared, a king would get nervous. Hezekiah had a horrible moment and uh, he was terrified of Assyria and he started thinking, well, I can, I can cut a deal with Egypt, we can forge an alliance with the Egyptians. 
And then the prophet Isaiah gets lifted up and comes and ministers to Hezekiah. And as we studied, the, the tandem between the prophet Isaiah and the king Hezekiah was a beautiful thing. And it's unfortunate here, and we get in 150 years later, 100 plus years later, we get to Jeremiah now. Josiah is the last good king that Judah's ever going to have. And Jeremiah actually does not come alongside the king. All of this is a public message to the people of Jerusalem. We don't have any record that, that Jeremiah actually personally ministered to Josiah. Until the day of his death, he stands and he gives a lamentation at Josiah's funeral. We never see a dynamic between Jeremiah and Josiah. Not at all. All right. We do see a dynamic with, uh, there's a prophetess named Huldah. She, she'll come face to face with Josiah. She will have ministry with, with King Josiah, but Jeremiah never does. And that's unfortunate, but in the plan of God. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but um, you should be familiar with Genesis 49.9. This is the prophecy related to Shiloh, the coming of the Christ. The scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes the one to whom it, is, it belongs, uh, that Judah is a lion. We have the, the language of this. So in Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Genesis 49, 9. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples and we have the great prophecy the messianic prophecy here of christ of all the tribes of israel he is born to the tribe of judah all right likewise in numbers 24 uh, balak is trying to hire balaam to curse israel okay we'll take the time to read it but you know the story and balaam can't curse israel because god has blessed them and the the four prophet prophet is uh, not going to make payday that day because he's not telling balak what he wants to hear kind of a fun chapter it makes me laugh every time i read it <laughs> anyway we have uh these issues here and the victim status here in jeremiah 2 why has he become a prey the young lions have roared at him they have roared loudly they have made his land a waste his cities have been destroyed without inhabitant why are they in this position they should be looking forward to the time of peace when the lion lies down with the lamb when there's messiah comes and reigns and they're not there yet why not why are they the victims? Also, the men of Memphis and Tapanese. These are a couple of Egyptian headquarters, idolatry centers. They have shaved the crown of your head. That would take some time to work on, but the idolatry centers of Egypt and the influence they have there. Have you not done this to yourself by your forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the, in the way? But now, what are you doing on the road to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what are you doing on the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Things are going bad and you think idolatry will help. You think these other nations will help. Egypt's not going to help you. Assyria isn't going to help you. You know, it's interesting. In the very year that, that uh, Jeremiah is called is the year that Assyria is falling. That Nabopolassar is taking the, the reins of Babylon, the father of Nebuchadnezzar. And that the, the history of the world is on the verge of a tremendous change. And God lifts up an eight-year-old boy to deliver these powerful messages. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary study. Your own, verse 19, your own wickedness will correct you. 
Your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. They've lost their fear of the Lord. And the consequence is, is their rampant apostasy. If they have any hope, they've got to repent. They've got to return to that fear. They've got to tremble before him. They have to call upon him in confession to be restored. Second issue here. Yahweh redeemed Israel from bondage, planted them for fruit bearing, but they defiled themselves through their harlotries. After everything he did for them, he planted them. This is verses 20 and 21. This takes us down through verse 25. Long ago, I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds. He brought Israel out of bondage in Egypt. But you said, I will not serve. For on every high hill and under every green tree, you have laid down as a harlot. You know, show me a mountain you didn't fornicate on. Show me a tree you didn't, you know, I can't find a tree you didn't fornicate under. Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? After everything Yahweh did to plant them and tend them and and bear a good fruit, and instead they produce this degenerate fruit from a foreign vine. And then they lie about it. And then they deny, oh, we're good, we're okay. And they don't know how stained they are. They are so stained. There's All the soap in China is not going to help them. It says, although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, <laughs> use as much soap as you want to use, there's not enough soap in the world. The stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord God. There is only one cleansing procedure that he's provided, and that is confession. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're not going to make it up to God through works and human effort and outward shows of repentance or penance. You're not going to clean out the Aegean stables and, and do all these good works for God to overcome your darkness. You're going to confess and he's going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. How can you say, I'm not defiled? <laughs> all right, just like in 1 John. I haven't sinned. If you say you have not sinned, you lie. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. The truth is not in you. How can you say I'm not defiled? I've not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. It's obvious. Everybody knows it. You are a swift young camel entangling her ways. You are a wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness that sniffs the wind in her passion in the time of her heat. Who can turn her away? This is kind of vulgar, by the way. The Hebrew on this is very vulgar. It's very um, blunt about the uh, mating practices of donkeys, female donkey, donkeys in heat. And um, all who seek her will not become weary. The male donkeys that take advantage of that, it's, uh, you know, that's, it's pretty easy for them because that's what they're begging for. That's what they want. All who seek her will not become weary. In her month, they will find her. And so this gets, this uses the, 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 the blunt and vulgar and, and, and plain language of, of this to, and for Yahweh to say, that's what you are. That's what you are. Who have you not fornicated with? 
denial of defilement. <laughs> That's you and me when we say, I haven't sinned. I'm okay. Let him who says he has not sinned, right? Denial of defilement is delusional and it is doomed. You will never get anywhere until you confess. That's what God's waiting for is your confession. Denial of defilement is delusional and doomed. Delusional and doomed. All right. If you want more of that, I can. I'm not a, an animal husbandry kind of guy. I've never raised donkeys, but I read a lot. And uh, this is this is pretty um, vulgar in uh, in that verse. And it's an eight year old boy preaching it. <laughs> All right. Wow. That ought to get your attention. I mean, it's not like it's, uh, you know, this is a kid. Not like he's got a lot of sexual experience, but he's preaching it. Preaching it from the animal side of things related to that. All right. Thirdly, where are your self-made gods? He invites these self-made gods to save them. All right. Where are your self-made gods? Verse 26, as the thief is shamed when he is discovered... So the house of Israel is shamed. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. You know, when you fashion an idol and then pray to it, as if it can do something for you, well, you fashioned that idol. It is a man-made thing. You made it. What is it going to do for you? For they have turned their back to me and not their face in the time of their trouble. They will say, Arise and save us. So call out to every idol you want to save you. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He will mock and he will welcome any false idol you want to put up. Go ahead, save them if you can. Because you don't exist. But where are your gods which you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can, if they can save you. In the time of your trouble, for according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. I mean, that's the thing. Idolatry never satisfies. It never ends. You can never get enough. The Greeks finally created this thing. Well, we'll, we'll make an idol to the unknown God just because we might have missed one. All right. It's just you never run out of idols. You never run out of gods. It's interesting. And it never achieves its goals. It'll never save we can go to God. He's the stronghold in the time of trouble. The ever-present help in time of need. The friend that sticks closer than a brother. These guys, a tree and a rock, what are they going to do for you? All right, it never ends. Idolatry never ends. It never achieves its goals. When can you ever rest confidently knowing that you have so pleased Zeus that your place is assured? It never ends. You have to constantly, constantly, constantly placate those pagan gods. Then finally, the last part of this chapter as well, and this, this is also pretty blunt, somewhat vulgar, but it's uh, what he addresses here, verses 29 through the end of the chapter. And really, it spills over into chapter 3. This divine discipline is supposed to be prompting repentance. But brazen harlots see nothing wrong in the passing pleasures that they pursue. They never see anything wrong with it. They never understand that they're reaping in themselves the corruption that they've brought upon themselves. They don't realize that all of their fornicating has given them the 
the diseases they have or the consequences they're faced with or the other issues involved. It never dawns on them. Maybe they had to change their behavior. Why do you contend with me? You have transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain I have struck your sons, and they accepted no chastening. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Even worse, not only are they failing to repent, they're actually murdering the very prophets who could give them messages of truth. O generation, heed the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel? Or the land of thick darkness? Why do my people say we are free to roam? We will no longer come to you. Can a virgin forget her ornaments? Or a bride her attire? You know, the, 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 the spe- I mean, she spent years preparing this veil. She has saved for it. She has crafted it. She has built this. She has sewn it. She has poured her treasure into this. Her father's dowry has blessed her to make this. She is going to leave her father's home. She is going to give of herself to her new husband in the purity of, of a virgin in her, on her wedding night. And she is, prepared, she is giving herself to her husband. And a whole new family is, is, now, is now created as the man leaves his father and mother and they cleave to one another and the two become one flesh. <coughs> and yet, my people have forgotten me days without number. The preciousness of the wife of your youth is gone. As now it's just harlotry day after day, night after night, adultery after adultery after adultery. <coughs> how well you, this is verse 33, how well you prepare your way to seek love. Therefore, even the wicked women, you have taught your ways. You're giving tips to the, 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 the harlots. You know, you're far from the pure virgin and the purity of, the, of what the sanctity of marriage ought to be. <coughs> this woman is given uh, advice to tips to the professionals. All right. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor. And this is just a darker, darker chapter as, as we proceed through it. <coughs> Yet you say I am innocent. <laughs> I didn't do anything wrong. Why is this all happening to me? <coughs> Surely his anger is turned away from me. All right, well, let's get down. Well, we'll pick up on this next week. I mean, there's, there's more here. But understand that the issues here involved, what harlotry is about, what spiritual harlotry is about, why this is so important, why it's lost in our culture. Spend some time in these verses. Understand the importance of purity before marriage, the necessity for not playing the harlot, for not poisoning your marriage ahead of time. All right. And then acting like, oh, there's nothing wrong with this. (coughs) There's everything wrong with this. Very quickly, and I know it's always short on Communion Sundays, but Leviticus 21, let me just grab these. And and if we don't have time to fully develop all this, just make yourself a list, write these down, look at them, read through them. In Leviticus 21, you have verses 13 through 15, and ask yourself, there's virgins and there's non-virgins. All right, plain and simple. And the, the priest has to marry a virgin. There's no options for the priest, Levitical priest in the Old Testament. 
He shall take a wife in her virginity. Now notice who's not a virgin. A widow or a divorced woman. Obviously, they're not virgins because they had been married. They used to have husbands, but one died and one left or whatever. The widow and the divorced woman, neither one of them is a virgin or one who is profaned by harlotry. That's the only other option you've got. There's three categories of non-virgins. And they're either widows, divorcees, or harlots. That's kind of harsh. All right? He may not take, but rather he is to marry a virgin of his own people. And this is for the purity of the Levitical uh, priesthood and the, and the lines there. Deuteronomy 22. Again, I don't have time for this, but... Um, Jot down the verses, read through them, pray over them. And in, in verses 13 through 21, on the wedding night, the uh, man comes and says, she wasn't a virgin. And it's a matter of public record. The village is involved, the girl's father's involved, the family's involved, because the, the, the contracts have been signed, the bride's uh, uh, payments have been made. And if he's going to shame a daughter of Israel, notice uh, in verse 14, he charges her with shameful deeds. It's shameful. Not in our culture anymore. Now it's called normal. Now it's called good. The Bible says it's shameful to partake of marital activity outside of marriage. Shameful deeds and publicly defames her and says, I took this woman, but she wasn't a virgin. The girl's father, now it goes to trial to defend her virginity, to defend her reputation and his. And it turns out, if it's true, verse 20, if the girl was not a virgin, premarital sex right here, if she is not a virgin, then they will bring her out to the doorway of her father's house and the men of her city will stone her to death because she has committed an act of folly. Notice, by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. It defiles her. It defiles her father's house. It actually defiles the land. And I tell you, Texas right now is so defiled. America is so defiled with rampant, shameful harlotry. Finally, Proverbs 30, verse 12 and verse 20. We've got to close with this. Proverbs 30. All right, where's Proverbs? I lost Proverbs. Here we go. Proverbs 30. Hmm. Verse 12, There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. <laughs> if you want to deny your own defilement, deny, deny, deny all you want, but it doesn't change the fact. If you are pure in your own eyes, you are still not washed from your filthiness. You need to adjust to God's standard. That's why homologeo is say the same thing God says about what you're doing. Confession is agreement with God. Same chapter down to verse 20. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Well, the divine discipline should prompt repentance. But brazen harlots see nothing wrong in the passing pleasures they pursue. And this is why Jerusalem is coming under the judgment they're coming under in the rebuke that Jeremiah is hitting them with. 
Next week, we'll get to this as he discusses the certificate of divorce, as he discusses why it is the northern kingdom went into captivity and why the southern kingdom is on the verge of the same thing. They could have at least learned from their older sister's example. So they're doubly guilty. They'll pick up there as well. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the blunt language of Scripture that you make it plain, you make it clear, that the only ambiguity comes in when carnal humans try to find wiggle room to not do what they've been told to do. And Father, I pray that we might be honest before you and before uh, one another in our obedience to the truth, in standing for a standard of conduct and behavior. And uh, Father, even as our own culture gets more and more alien to any divine norms and standards. Father, I just want to thank you that as the darkness gets darker, our light shines brighter, and we may, uh, we may stand out as different beyond anything that uh, this world may, may mock and laugh and, and ridicule us for such old-fashioned, naive values, and yet it is the truth that preserves our soul. And Father, um, we'll have more on this. I pray that we would be uh, diligent to study what are these defilements how is the soul defiled how is a land defiled and if the defilement isn't stopped what is the only recourse left as a nation comes under national destruction these lessons may get very personal very quickly for our nation father so i ask that you would teach us now what we need to glorify your son and i thank you in his most precious and holy name amen